So we are in a series uh, working through the book of 1 Peter. We're calling this Where We Fit in the Story of God. Where we fit in the story of God. First Peter is, is written to communicate to Christians a lot about our identity, a lot about what, what God is doing, this big picture story, but also where we fit, where we find our place and our part in that story. So last week we read through our first 12 verses in First Peter and we gave four questions that we should be asking. So as we go through this series, I'm not necessarily explicitly going to ask and answer these questions every Sunday, but, but these are good things to be thinking about and meditating on as I assign for you the, the reading each week. Hey, here's what we're going to do next week. Man, and you're studying and, and allowing God to speak. These are good questions to ask. So the first one is this. What did it mean, this passage of scripture mean, to the original authors, author and the original readers? So in this case, Peter, uh, this famous disciple of Jesus, this person who we, we've seen his highs and we've seen his lows, we've seen his great days and we've seen his bad days. What, what was he writing for? What, what was he trying to communicate? What did the original readers, which we discovered last week, he wrote to Christians in five regions, five portions of what is now modern-day Turkey. In fact, really, he wrote this to almost the entirety of what would now be modern-day Turkey. These five regions kind of fill up that area that is now Turkey. And so these first-generation Christians, these Christians who were persecuted. These Christians who were, were different, they were other than the culture around them. What was he trying to say to them? Second question is, what does this passage teach us about God, right? What does this teach us about the God that we serve? What does it tell us about his nature, about his character, about what he is doing in our lives? Thirdly, what does this teach us about ourselves, so what does it teach us about God? What does it teach me about me? Or what does this teach us about the church corporately, about our identity as believers? What does it teach us about people as sinners? What is this teaching us about us? And then lastly, how does this passage apply today? How do, how do I apply this passage to my life today? And so these are the questions that we are asking. We start with the original text, with the original purpose, uh, and then we're going to move it to application in Olive Branch today, in Collierville today, in Memphis today, in Horn Lake today, wherever you happen to live, wherever you happen to be from, we're going to apply it to our lives. So here we go. Where we fit in the story of God, part number two. We're going to start in verse 13 today. If you have an NIV Bible like I do, there are section headings. Now, these section headings are not part of the original text. Peter did not write these. He did not title uh, these. The chapter numbers and verse numbers were not part of the original text either. Those were things that came later to help us break it down and, and learn and find it and know what's going on. So those things are not inspired by God, but they are helpful. So this section heading in the NIV says, be holy. Everybody say, be holy. Yeah. So this is going to be the challenge, right? We're going to be holy. Verse 13 says, therefore, anytime we see therefore, the old uh, seminary professor says that you're supposed to go back and look and ask, what is it therefore? So anytime you see therefore, it's, it's referring back to something we just learned. So what did we learn at the end of our passage last week? We learned that, that these prophets were looking forward to Jesus, that the angels were even looking forward to Jesus, that we've been blessed with this gift of Jesus that for generations, thousands of years, people have been looking forward to, and now we have the blessing of what they've all looked forward to. So with the context of that blessing, 
blessing of Jesus, that he's come for us, that he's delivered us, that he's saved us. Therefore, with minds that are alert. Everybody say alert. God wants us to be alert. God wants us to, to be aware of what's going on. In fact, he even goes on to say, and fully sober. Sometimes the, the question pops up, right? Uh, well, now that, that marijuana is getting legalized in a lot of places, is it, is it okay for me to have a special brownie from time to time, right? Is it okay for me to partake in some of this stuff? Uh, and, and so my advice, the way that I answer that question is, is just the same way that I do with alcohol. Bible doesn't say that you can't touch alcohol, uh, but it does say not to get drunk, right? And, and so when it comes to chemical substances, if they're illegal, easy answer is no. We're not supposed to partake of something that the government tells us not to. We're supposed to honor and respect our government. But if and when it is legal or you're somewhere where it is, which we were just on this trip, right, I can't tell you how many weed shops we saw all throughout the western U.S. They are everywhere. And we only went to a couple of them, but... <laughs> Some of you are going to debate if that was a true statement or not. Uh, I want to stay married. So I'll just tell you, we didn't. Uh, That was a joke. Uh, We went to a bunch. So every state, we wanted to make sure that we had a souvenir. No. Go. Way off the notes. Uh, So (laughs) let's bring this back. We are called to be fully sober. Right? We're called to be alert and fully sober. And so anything that I put into my body that's keeping me from making decisions based on what God has said or based on what the Holy Spirit has said and now is causing me to change the way I make my decisions, that's not something God's called his holy people to. Uh, And so that's how we make that decision. That's how we discern that, even though that may not have been written into Scripture because nobody was making special brownies 2,000 years ago. That's how we can apply that today. God's called us to be alert and fully sober. That means not, not tipsy, not buzzed, right? Like we can come up with these like little terms to justify, well, I wasn't drunk. I, I was just a little tipsy. Uh, you know, I just got a little faded. Uh, but the reality is God's word says fully sober, right? That's the, that's the call that God has for his people. He says, with minds that are alert and are fully sober, set your hope. Man, he's calling us the hope. Man, we got something to hope for. We got something to look forward to. He says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. You've got something to look forward to, church. You've got something to believe for. You've got something greater than what you've experienced now that is on its way. And so we're going to set our hope in that. We're not going to set our hope in the economy. We're not going to set our hope in an election. We're not going to set our hope in a leader. We're not even going to set our hope in a church, as much as I love City Church. Man, we're going to set our hope in the grace that is going to be given to us when Jesus is fully revealed, when we see him face to face. That's where our hope is. Verse 14, as obedient children. We get some words today that we don't love. Holy and obedient. He says, as obedient Children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. It says there's, a, there's an old you. There's a way you used to live. There's desires that you naturally conformed to, and God is calling you out of that life into something better. Verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, so Section title, Be Holy in All You Do. 
Pastor Braden said, what we do flows out of who we are. We're not called to be human doings. We're called to be human beings. He says, be holy in all that you do. So I'm first going to be holy. That's my identity. That's my status. That's my place. And because that's who I am, my lifestyle will be a life of holiness. Just as the one who called you is holy, who's the one who called you? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about his friend. He's talking about this one that, that he knew up close, that he watched. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus feed 5,000. He saw Jesus speak, and Lazarus came out of the grave. He understood the holiness of Jesus' lifestyle. He, he spent every day with this guy for three and a half years up close as one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. He knew the life that Jesus lived. And he said, I can tell you, Jesus was holy. He was set apart. He lived the life he was called to live. And if he did it, we can do it too. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Why? For it is written, because the Old Testament says this is our first Old Testament uh, reference here. He's going to do it 22 times in, in this letter. He says, as it is written, be holy. Why? Because I am holy. Because God is holy. When he says I am holy, he's not referring to Peter. He's not saying be holy like me. He's saying God has spoken and God has said to be holy because I am holy. This is not a popular topic in modern-day Christianity. This is not a popular topic in American Christianity. We love to be blessed. We love to be favored. We love to be delivered. We love miracles, right? We love all the stuff that God does for us, and I love that stuff too. Please don't misunderstand me. That is so incredible and, and mind-blowing and it's so wonderful to experience. But sometimes we can emphasize that and kind of just leave, well, this is kind of old school. This, this is kind of judgmental, right? This is kind of something that, man, that, that, that's the church that we grew up in. And, and that church, man, where they gossiped and they did all these things. And we associate some negative stuff with holiness. But this is scriptural. This is the word of God, and if we're not careful, we'll let our flesh pick and choose what parts of Scripture appeal to us. And I want this part of Jesus, but I don't want that part of Jesus. But the reality is, he's either going to be Lord of all or not at all. He doesn't offer us, man, you can take these three aspects of my character and ignore these two over here. He says, this is who I am, and I'm giving you everything I've got. I'm giving you myself in my entirety, and I'm calling you to grab a hold of it and to be like me, and I'm empowering you to be like me. Why? Because I'm putting my holy spirit inside of you, the one who's going to walk you into holiness. We just sang about him. We invited the Holy Spirit to, to come and to touch us and give us a fresh anointing and a revival. Man, those things are powerful and important. And if they truly happen, we're going to walk in some holiness. So this can be a really confusing topic because in one part of Scripture, in fact, a little bit later on in our message today, we're going to see that Peter says, hey, that we are holy. We have been given holiness, and so we're already holy, but then he tells us to walk in holiness, to live a holy life. And so we need to understand this. There is a difference between spiritual status and earthly actions. 
okay? You are holy in God's sight because of what Jesus has done for you. When God looks at you, he sees you as a holy, set-apart individual. That is your declared status. This is who you are. Your spiritual status is fixed. It doesn't change, right? So just because you happen to... God forbid, cuss that person out this week, right? You walk in some unholiness. Uh, that doesn't mean that you are no longer holy in God's sight because he's declared you to be holy. Your holiness isn't based on your actions. It's based on Jesus' actions. So you're still holy in God's sight. However, now he's saying, I want your actions to line up with what I've said about you. I'm moving you towards this place. Your earthly actions are fluid. They change your actions can be unholy or they can be holy. So, heart check time, church. Where are you at today? Real quiet. Why? Because we're not good at this. This is not a strength of our generation. This is not a strength of our nation. And if we're being real honest... This isn't the greatest strength of our church, right? This is something where we have room to grow in. And this doesn't mean that you're a failure as a Christian. It doesn't mean God is rejecting us and he's going to smite city church and the church burns down tomorrow. And God forbid if it burns down tomorrow, we're all going to be like, what happened, right? Uh, that's, that's not what I'm trying to communicate today. What I'm saying is God's calling us to grow up. He's calling us to mature. He's calling us to live something better, to live a life worthy of the calling he's placed on our lives. And Peter, 2,000 years ago, writes this to these first-generation Christians, to these people who are living in persecution, who are literally risking their lives to be identified as Christians. And he says, you got to be holy. you got to live a life of holiness. you got to do holy things to live up to what God has called you to. Not because you're earning your salvation. Not because if you don't, you're going to be rejected. You're already accepted. Your status has already been declared. But this is now who you are. And your actions flow out of your identity. This is what God is calling us to. He's calling us to holiness. So we can put it this way. The process of your early, earthly actions moving from the unholiness of lostness. So before we knew Jesus, we had no holiness. Now that we know Jesus, we have some holiness, right? We have some holiness and some unholiness. Some of us may have more holiness. Some of us may have more unholiness. But probably all of us in this room who know Jesus, who have been redeemed, we've got some percentage of holiness in our life, some percentage of unholiness, some days where it's clicking and it's coming together. And, man, I'm close to God, and I'm hearing his voice. Voice and I'm walking in what he's called me to do, and some days where it's like, whoops, right? Can we just press the reset button? Can I disconnect like Dwindle talked about? Reconnect with the Holy Spirit, and let, let's just reboot and try this all over again. And praise God, we serve a God of second chances and third chances and 53rd chances, and I don't know, I'm on my 152nd or something, right? Like he seeps giving us more chances. His mercies are new every morning. His grace is sufficient. So this is not a condemning message. This is just a heart check message. Where am I at? Where am I today and where God wants me to be? The process of your earthly actions moving from the unholiness of lostness to matching the holiness of your spiritual state, that process is called sanctification. 
It doesn't happen instantaneously. In fact, man, it, it, it's a whole lifetime process. God knew it when he saved you. He knew you weren't going to immediately start walking in full holiness. He knew you weren't going to immediately start being everything that Jesus had made you to be. So he gives us a lifetime as a believer to mature, a lifetime to grow up, a lifetime to move from the unholiness of the old life to the holiness of who Jesus has created us to be and the holiness he's given us. Praise God. He's patient. Praise God. He continues to allow us to grow up. So the question is not, have you fully gotten there? Because none of us have. The question is this. Are you moving in the right direction? Are you becoming more responsive to his voice? Are you recognizing a little more and a little more some areas that, that need to be refined? Are you working on progressively smaller and smaller things. Because, man, first of all, he brings the biggest stuff to us. He's like, you can't do that anymore. You got you to gotta deal with that. That's got to go. And so we get the big stuff. And so is he, man, continually knocking stuff off of us that doesn't look like Jesus so we get shaped more and more into the picture of the Holy One. Where are you at today? If you're not moving in the right direction, if God forbid you're moving in the wrong direction, if God forbid you're in one of those seasons where, where, where unholiness is creeping up more and more in your life and it's made, you feel like you've just kind of given up spiritually and you just reached this place where it's like, I'm not moving forward and so now I'm moving backwards, then allow the word of God to gently correct you today. Allow the Holy Spirit inside of you to awaken you today. You know what? That's not the direction I want to go. That's not the direction God has for me. That's not, that's not who he saved me to be. He's done too much for me to go back to who I was before he saved me. I'm choosing again today to move towards that picture of Jesus, that place of sanctification that he has for me. So what do we do if that's the case? Well, we repent. We tell God we're sorry. God, forgive me for allowing this unholiness in my life. Forgive me for developing this habit that doesn't look like you. Forgive me for tolerating this stuff that's less than what you have for me. God, forgive me. As a believer, one of the greatest characteristics of a Christian is we need to be good repenters, both to God and to each other, because we're all going to miss it, right? We're all going to fail. We're all going to have good days, and we're going to have bad days. And so we just got to accept having to repent doesn't mean you're a failure. Having to repent means you're a Christian. Okay? So just give it to God. God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Receive his grace and then get back on the horse. That's why he says a righteous man falls seven times. But he doesn't stay down. He gets back up and he tries again and again and again. Amen? Amen. All right, let's move forward. Spent a lot of time there. We got a lot more to cover. Make sure that we can get through all of it. He says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time, you could say live out your life on earth, as foreigners here in reverent fear. Peter correctly identifies these first century believers as foreigners. You think of yourself as a foreigner very often? He doesn't identify them as foreigners because they're not living in their homeland. Presumably the majority of them were living in their homeland. But Peter says, because you are a believer, your home is no longer here. Your home is no longer Turkey. Your home is no longer Galatia. Your home is no longer Asia, these regions that he lived in. He said, now you're a foreigner in a place that you used to belong. So we went on this awesome trip, right? 
And one of the first really cool experiences we had, uh, we got to spend about four days in the Jackson, Wyoming area. Uh, and so we actually have some friends who are from Tulsa that moved to Jackson a number of years ago. And so we got to reconnect with them and hang out with, with Isaac and Joy. And so while we were hanging with Isaac and Joy, uh, we went and we saw Yellowstone National Park. We saw Grand Teton National Park. And actually, before we met up with them on a, a Saturday afternoon, we went back up into Grand Teton for, for just a, a few moments. We had a couple little small things on our checklist we wanted to see and do. And so we did those things. And while we were driving back down to meet them, uh, I saw a moose off on the side of the road. And that was like one of the things that we were really like praying. We wanted to see a moose. We had already, by this point in time, we had already seen, I think, six bears, which was like over the top beyond what we, we were expecting. We'd seen hundreds of bison. We'd seen all kinds of cool stuff. But one thing we had literally prayed is, God, we want to see a moose, right? Uh, and so we're driving down, uh, and, and I see this moose off on the side of the road, and I just like three-wheel 180 the minivan around, uh, Mel's freaking out. The kids are freaking out. Like, what are you doing? It's like, I saw a moose. We prayed for that moose. We're going to get our moose before it runs off, right? So, so we go, and, and we see the moose, and we're, we're looking at this moose on the side of the road, and, and Judah pops up, and he's like, I see a baby moose. And about the time that we're like, no, you know, there's no baby moose, it's like, Oh my goodness, there is a baby moose. Like he's like literally like suckling under the mama. And so we not only saw the mama moose, but now we saw a baby moose, which of course, like anytime you see a baby animal, it's like above and beyond, right? So God just blesses us with this. So we go and we hang out with Joy and Isaac and we tell them this story. And they're like, you know, Mel's like, yeah, he just pulled a, just, just did a U-turn right there in the middle of the highway at 50 miles an hour. Uh, and Joy goes, oh, you guys are such tourists. Like... <laughs> You're the people that we make fun of, right? And, and, and when you hear that, like, there's this immediate part of you, like, well, I don't want to look like a tourist, right? But guess what? I got a Mississippi license plate in Wyoming. We're tourists, okay? We don't belong here. We're not from here. We came to see as much cool stuff as we can. So I'm not going to be ashamed about the fact that I don't look like somebody from Wyoming, that I'm not reacting the same way to seeing a moose. You may see a moose every other day. That's cool. We don't. Right? And I think sometimes as believers, we get so caught up in being worried that we look like we're not from around here, that we conform to the world around us, where God says, this ain't your home, and you're not supposed to look like you're from here. It's okay to look like a foreigner. It's okay to live in a way that doesn't live up to all the culture around you because God has done something greater for you. He's done something in you. He's created something for you. His son died for you, and his spirit lives in you. So don't feel like you got to blend in anymore, Christian. Thank you, Brenda. It's okay to look like you're not. From around here, he says, as foreigners live here in reverent fear. About a year ago, uh, the George Floyd murder happened, right? And we talked about some of that stuff here at City Church pretty close after it happened and addressed some things, took a pretty hard stand against racism, like we're going to believe to be something better. Um, and there was a guy who was very offended by the stance that I took. 
a good friend of mine, somebody who I love and, uh, and believe in, somebody that I know God has a, a purpose and a call on his life. And he got pretty upset and through that and through some other statements that, that were made around that season. And so uh, to his credit, he, he met with me and we had lunch together one day and sat down and, and talked this out, you know. Well, and, I, and I asked him, I said, well, why does this hurt you so much for, for me to say, man, God's calling us to something better, that the way that we were in the South before is not necessarily who we have to be today, and we can, we can pursue a new level of restoration, a new level of unity. Why, does, why do you feel so attacked by this? And, and he said, my whole life I've grown up with this pride as a Southerner, this pride in the Confederacy, this pride in, in who my great-great-great-grandfather was and what he fought for. And you're, you're attacking that identity. That's all that I have. And my heart broke for this guy. Because as a believer, my identity as a Southerner is not all that I have. And my identity is an American. My identity is as this political party. My identity is this ethnicity or this race or this language or whatever else in earthly stuff. I'm not saying all those things are bad or we need to run away from those things, but those are lesser identities. My identity is as a believer in Jesus Christ. And when my identity as, as a Southerner, as a Mississippian, doesn't line up with my identity as a believer, I'm choosing my identity as a believer over my identity identity as a southerner okay like my great-great-grandfather fought for the confederacy his father owned slaves okay but that doesn't mean I need to choose that heritage over the heritage I have in Jesus Christ it doesn't mean I have to condemn right like like they made their decisions and they're in the past they're dead they've answered for their sins that's all taken care of so I'm not going to sit here and and, and trample on them or, or talk about how terrible they were that's a decision they made but I'm also not going to embrace that as my identity, that, hey, this is who I'm called to be. Because my heritage is Jesus Christ. My legacy is I'm a child of the king. I've been grafted into his kingdom. So Peter reminds them, you are foreigners. You're not from around here. You might have been born here. You might have grown up here. Your family might be from here, but I got a greater family from you, and that family is not from here. That family has a home somewhere better. Praise God. Too often we strive too hard to look like this place is home, and it's not home. It's not home. This identity as a foreigner helps me in two ways. If we can grab a hold of that, if we can wrap our brain around that, this identity helps us in two ways. Number one, it reminds me when I am comfortable to not hold on to earthly identity or temporary things. That, that, that man, if I'm getting too comfortable with, with the stuff around me, that, man, this stuff is temporary. In fact, he's going to talk in a minute about things that pass away. Man, the, the, this earthly stuff, this is not something to identify with because it's going gonna, it's gonna to end. It's not going to be here forever. So I'm not going to hold on to earthly identity. I'm not going to hold on to temporary things. But secondly, this helps me. Number two, it encourages me when I'm uncomfortable that this world doesn't have a hold on me. When I'm suffering. When things are falling apart. Man, it's a reminder that this is not my home. I've got something greater to look forward to. So it, so it challenges me when I'm comfortable that, okay, okay. 
Don't forget. Don't get too comfortable with this stuff because this ain't yours and this ain't your place. This is temporary. This is just for a season. There's something else coming. But man, when I'm uncomfortable, when I'm broken, when I'm hurt, when I look at the world around me and I shake my head, when I look at our, our political environment and I'm like, man, everybody's awful and there's no integrity and, and there's, who do you even believe in? What leader can we possibly have that's going to take us in the right direction? When things seem like they're falling apart, this identity is a foreigner reminds me this is just a season, baby. And there's a much greater season to come. We've got to identify as foreigners. We've got to remember this is not our home. This is not our place. This is not where we are from. Amen? Watch what Peter says next. He says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. He picks earthly things that everybody wants, everybody desires, earthly things of great value. And he says, no, it's not with silver, it's not with gold that you were redeemed. You were redeemed with something even greater, something even more. This is verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You were redeemed with something eternal, something that cannot perish, that cannot be destroyed. Verse 20, he was chosen he being Jesus, before the creation of the world, but it was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. It's not perishable things. It's not destructible things. It's not temporary things that brought you into this thing. Why is that important? Because if it were temporary things that redeemed us, our redemption would be temporary. But because something eternal has brought our redemption, our redemption is eternal. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be destroyed. Praise God for that. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth uh, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. We're called to love each other deeply, right? We're not just called to kind of tolerate each other on Sunday mornings and hope that we sit by somebody that we like a little bit more than everybody else when we're in service together and they'll go to our own life. Man, we're called to love each other deeply, to have a bond, to have a connection. I had the pleasure this week of having lunch with some of our missionaries, Tim and Ellie Bentley from Macedonia. They're going to be here with us in the month of October and have a Sunday morning when they get to share what's going on in that part of the world. And one thing that really stood out in our conversation is Tim was just talking about Macedonian culture. And he said, man, these people do life together. Man, that, 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 they invite you over to their home. They're not inviting you over to watch something on TV and then go back out to your life. Like, you're going to talk for four hours, and you're going to leave their best friends. Like, there's this deep bond. Now, he also said they're very direct. He said every time he comes back to America, he gains weight because our word, food over here is worse. Uh, and he said as soon as he gets back to Macedonia, he knows everybody's going to say, you got fat. Uh, he said they just, they just tell the truth. Uh, he says, so, so I got to diet before I go back to Macedonia so I don't have to hear how fat I got in America. Uh, but he said, man, these people, there's a love for each other. There's a bond. There's a connection. Now, these people don't have, like, anything compared to what we have. But they have each other. 
And there's far greater value in that. So often we get wrapped up in our possessions and our stuff and we can live this isolated life. But that isolated life doesn't have the hope in it, doesn't have the joy in it, doesn't have the fulfillment, the purpose in it of what God has designed us to. So Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed. He says it again. You you didn't get saved from something that's going to pass away. You were born of imperishable In other words, the seed that God placed in you, that's an eternal seed. It's an imperishable seed. It's not going to be destroyed. It's not going to be taken away through the living and enduring word of God. So how was I born again? I was born again because I received the word of God. And that seed is growing in me. It's bringing me to holiness. It's bringing me to the place that God wants me to be. Praise God. 24, for all people are like grass. He quotes the Old Testament again. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. The seed in you is from the word of God. And that word endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Praise God. It's going to endure I got 10 verses left. We'll see if we can make it. I got 10 minutes for 10 verses. Let's go. Uh, number Verse 1, therefore, rid yourselves. So, again, therefore, because of the eternal imperishable seed in you, because of what God's done for you, because of how he saved you, rid yourselves of all mallet and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Notice that he says, rid yourselves. So often we go to God and we ask God to change us. And sometimes he will. Praise God. Sometimes God says, I'm putting the ball in your guard. I've already given you the Holy Spirit. I've already empowered you to live the life that I've called you to. Now I need you to put some work in. Now I need you to, 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 to start to do it, to start to work on it. I'm going to help you. I'm coming with you. I'm not leaving you on your own. You're never alone. I'm always with you. But there's a part that you get to play. And so we don't get to blame God because we haven't grown as much as we think we need to grow. We need to own that responsibility. Okay, I still got some work to do. I got some stuff in me that doesn't look like Jesus. I'm going to start ridding myself of this. I'm going to start going to war with my sin nature and start cutting some stuff out. Because this is what God's called me to. Verse 2, he says, like newborn babies, like Easton Holly, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up. In your salvation. You've ever run around a baby? Talking about crave spiritual milk every two hours? Waking you up in the middle of the night, need some more milk, right? That's the picture of what we should be like when it comes to to our time with God, and what we should be like when it comes to the presence of God, the word of God, that man, again and again and again, I'm going back to the source, I'm craving it. The reality is the more we get, the more we'll crave, and if we don't crave it, it's because we're not getting any. So let's be like babies. Like spiritual babies crave that spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up, mature in your salvation. What does milk do for a baby? It makes them grow quickly. Right? Man, they grow way too fast. My daughter's in first grade. Like that blows my mind. Like it doesn't make sense that she's already there. My son's in second. They grow fast. It happens quick. And we're called to grow quickly. Right? Not to perfection, but we're called to grow up. There should be progress. There should be something identifiable in our life. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is 
good. In other words, when we taste that spiritual milk, once we get a taste of what God's word can actually do in our life, once we get a taste of his presence and the impact it makes, the joy that it brings, the peace that it sets in our heart, that should cause us in us a desire. I need more of that. Man, I, I, need, I need to do that again. I need more frequency of this because I've tasted that he's good. Verse 4, he says, as you come to him, him being Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. So Jesus was rejected by people, killed, murdered, crucified by people, but he was chosen by God. He's precious, special to God. Verse 5, you also... So if Jesus is this living stone, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Then we could put in parentheses there, spiritual powerhouse. God's building you into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now when Peter refers to a house where sacrifices are built, what's, what's the picture he's creating here? It's the temple. What are you? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence lives in you. And here's what I never connected before in 1 Peter until this week. I don't know why I never saw it, but it just always read right past it. Peter, his name means rock. And he says, just like Jesus, the living rock, is being made and has done all that God has asked him to do. He was rejected by man, but, but he's precious to God. Now you, as little living rocks, little representations of who Jesus is and what he's done, you're being built up into a spiritual house. Now, if you're being built, that implies you're not there yet, right? Like, you ever been in the middle of a construction zone? It's a mess, right? Like, so, sometimes, man, if you do a renovation on your house, it gets a whole lot worse before it gets better. Right? And so if you're a mess today, can I just encourage you? You're being built. Somebody needed that encouragement. Man, you look at your life, and man, there's this stuff everywhere, and this room not belong here, and this room shouldn't look like this. Man, is there some construction going on? Man, it may look a little bit worse before it gets better, but God ain't done yet. Because Jesus, the living stone, is creating you as a living stone to look like him. And what happens when one stone comes together with another stone and a whole bunch of other stones? They make something. They make the house of God. And so God is fitting you together with some other stones in your life, some other believers in your life, that together you're going to be formed into something that's a powerhouse. Where do you fit in the story of God? You fit together. God has fit our stones together for us to be something, for us to be a powerhouse that makes an impact. So if there's some construction going on, that doesn't mean you're a failure. I'll tell you what means you're a failure if the construction has ended. Because he's building you into something. So if there's no building going on, man, if the house is just there and it's set, well, it's time for you to go be with Jesus. But if there's still some building happening, if there's still some renovation, if there's still some stuff that may look like it's a mess, it's because God's piecing some stuff together in your life to create you into who he's called you to be. So be encouraged by that today. 
Verse 6, for in Scripture it says, so again, he quotes the Old Testament. See, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion is the hill of the Lord. Zion is, is the place in Jerusalem where God's presence dwells in the temple. He says, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. This Old Testament reference is a quote about Jesus, it's a prophecy about Jesus, that Jesus is a cornerstone. A cornerstone necessarily implies other stones are coming to be built on it. In other words, Jesus isn't the completed house of what God wants to do. Jesus is the start. He's the foundation of what God wants to do, but he's bringing some other stones together. Look at somebody and say, man, I'm a stone. Look, look at somebody and say, get stone. Just kidding, don't do that having some fun with that today, right? It's okay. We can laugh in church. It's okay. You don't have to feel guilty. You're not, you're not, you're not, yeah, you don't have to repent for laughing at that. He says, I, I lay a stone in Zion. See, this picture of Zion, of this rock, actually inspired some people years and years ago as they were in a place in, in southern Utah that we got to visit, which is now known as Zion National Park. Uh, and I brought a picture, and it's not the greatest picture because uh, I'm in it, but if you go ahead and throw this up there. This is us looking very sunburned, very washed out. Uh, but Zion is known for these beautiful red rock formations. And of all the places, I think we went to like, I don't know, 19 national parks on this trip, something ridiculous. We saw amazing, amazing stuff. But of all the things that we saw, Zion stood out for, for two things. Number one, uh, I think Zion is, pictures do it the least justice of any place that we were. You just can't really capture. Uh, and I'd seen pictures of Zion before. I'd never been before. And I was like, eh, whatever. Uh, like it's, it's a place. Uh, but, but when you're there, it's, it's amazing. There's just something about it. And so they, they saw this place, these beautiful rocks. And they, they had seen in Scripture this description of Jesus. Man, the chief's cornerstone is built in Zion. And so they named it after that. But, but Zion had one other distinguishing characteristic of all the places we went, including we went to like big, big places, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, Yosemite, like the, the, the biggest of the big, right? Zion was by far the most crowded, like incredibly crowded, like just lines after lines after lines. And, and I came in this morning, by the way, Zion is, is a picture of heaven, it's a foreshadow of heaven, not Zion National Park, but I mean Zion in Scripture is a foreshadow of heaven. I came in this morning and Miss Christie's wearing a shirt that says, Make Heaven Crowded. Can I encourage you, church? Zion's crowded. Man, there are people on top of people. It's not crowded in a way that's uncomfortable if you're like the introvert and you're like, nope, I don't want to go there, right? Like it's crowded in the best possible way because God has brought a whole lot of living stones together and meshed them together and built them together. And Zion, the place of the Lord, is crowded. And praise God it is. And we're called to make it even more crowded. Amen? Amen. Verse 7. Now to you who believe this stone, this stone being Jesus, is precious. But to those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So there are those who are going to reject Jesus. This was prophesied. This was known. There's people who, who aren't going to accept him. And we're going to do everything we can to find the ones who will and to share him and to point people to him. But, but the fact that some are going to reject him, that shouldn't catch us off guard. It shouldn't freak us out. That's, that's well established in Scripture. Verse 8, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. 
So they don't reject God because God has rejected them. God has destined them for salvation. He's destined them for Jesus. He's destined them to receive, but they on their own volition of their own decision say, you know what? I don't want any of that Jesus stuff in my life. What a sad place to be. We got to keep loving them. We got to keep encouraging them. We got to keep believing we're going to make heaven crowded. Keep going after them. Verse 9, but you, look at the person next to you, say, but you. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The King James famously says you are a peculiar people. You're a different kind of people. You're foreigner people. You don't look like you're from around here. You stand out, right? You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Did you know that you're God's special possession? I think like the Toy Story movies, right? There's always like the favorite toy. Woody was the favorite toy, and then Forky's the favorite toy. What a disaster that is, right? What a shame. Uh, kids choose the most ridiculous things. You're God's special possession. How awesome is that? I'm his special possession. As broken and as flawed and as inconsistent as I may be, I'm his special possession. What a treasure. There's some identity in verse 9 here. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So that, so again, who I am determines what I do, right? What I do flows out of who I am. So he establishes who I am so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Man, worship night, we get to live this out. We get to come together as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and declare the goodness, the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And Peter closes with this. He says, once you were not a people, you were just a person, right? Once you were not a people, you were a person, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want you to notice the way Peter communicates here. Everything he communicates in verses 9 and 10 is in the plural. He doesn't say that you are a chosen person. He says you're a chosen people. He doesn't say that you are a royal priest. What's a priest do? A priest stands between those who are far from God and God himself. He says, you are a royal priesthood, corporate. He he doesn't say that you're a holy individual. He says, you are a holy nation. Verse 10, he doesn't say you are a person. He says, you are a people. Again and again and again, he's saying, you're not just a stone, but God's building us together. God's gifting us to each other. God's doing something in us corporately. If you feel isolated this morning, if you feel alone this morning, I need to encourage you that God's got some stones that he's going to be placing you with. He's going to be building you with. Now, you may have some part in finding those stones and connecting to those stones. Man, if if you think this morning that you're okay on your own, can I just encourage you that God's got something better in community? He's got something designed for you. You're not designed to be a holy person. You're designed to be part of a holy people. 
That's why the, the church is so valuable. It's so important. And so often we miss this. It's not just about coming together and singing some songs together and hearing some preacher stand on a stage and watching him cry and laughing at him together, right? Like there, there, there's something so much deeper in what he's designed us for. And sometimes we just scratch the surface of it. But he wants to build us together, church. He wants to place us together. He wants to form something in us as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people. So notice that this identity is not individual, but it's corporate. It's not just about me as a Christian. It's about us as Christians together, as followers of Jesus together. Peter called us in verse chapter 1 to take right action. Now he speaks to the identity that those actions actually flow from. He says, okay, you're called to be holy. You're called to do holy things. You're called to live a holy life. How do you live a holy life? Because you're chosen. Because you've been given this royal priesthood. Because you've been called and created and formed into a holy nation as living stones built on top of the chief cornerstone, which is Jesus.